Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for every American family. They're a membership-based online shopping club offering thousands of the best-selling organic foods and natural products in everyday sizes, and they sell for up to 50% off retail prices with free and fast nationwide home delivery. This is really cool. For every paid membership, Thrive Market donates a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or military. For a limited time, Paleo Hacks is doing an exclusive offer with Thrive Market. So you can go over to thrivemarket.com slash paleohacks and register to win a $1,000 shopping spree. That's $1,000 of free stuff you can win. That's a grand prize. We're also giving away 10 second prize winners that get one year free membership. And because we love all of you equally, as a bonus, every new member who registers through thrivemarket.com slash paleohacks is going to receive 25% off their first purchase. All right, time for today's show. Paleo Hackers, welcome back. Another episode of the Paleo Hacks podcast brought to you by paleohacks.com. I'm Clark, your host. With me today on the other end is Chris Kresser. He is a integrative health practitioner, author of Your Personal Paleo Code and The Paleo Cure. He's been on Dr. Oz, Fox and Friends, and he's with us here today to chat it up. So Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Clark. Pleasure to be here. Cool, man. So normally on the show, we like to uh, get to know the person who's who we're talking with. And there's always really fascinating stories behind how they got into doing what they're doing. Um, I'm curious about what yours is. How did you get into, you know, this blog and what you're doing now? Well, like many other healthcare practitioners, I started with my own health challenge. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I sold all my possessions and took off on a round the world surf trip and ended up in Indonesia um, on a small island called Sumbawa where I was living in a little village and surfing one of the, one of the better waves in Indonesia there. And uh, at, at one point, un, unbeknownst to me and a few of the other surfers in the village, some locals dug a trench between a stagnant pool of water that cows were, had been defecating in and the surf spot. And so this water drained into the river mouth and into the surf spot, and we all got really sick with, uh, you know, classic tropical illness type of symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, delirium, fever. Uh, I don't really remember much of those three days, but yeah. there, there was an Australian guy who had some antibiotics in his medical kit that kind of brought me back from the, the brink. And then... Uh, I continued to travel, but even though I had recovered a little bit from the antibiotics, it became clear that it was evolving into a, a much more chronic and serious condition. And I had to, you know, I ended up uh, cutting my trip a little bit short. Uh, and uh, you know, which I, I intended to be out on the road for a couple of years, but I came back after a year and. You know, to, to make a very long story short, I spent the next 10 years um, recovering my health and uh, started where a lot of people start with the conventional medicine system, quickly found that to be lacking in yeah. a number of ways. And um, then, you know, started to investigate other systems of medicine and then ultimately take matters into my own hands and went back and studied medicine myself. 
um, in, you know, in part in an effort to continue my own healing process, but also because I had already learned a tremendous amount that I could see, you know, just in my interactions with friends and family was that was valuable to them. And, and people, you know, kept asking, hey, why don't, why don't you take some of what you learned and, um, you know, formalize that so you can help other people. And, and that's exactly what I did. And here I am. Okay. And so you, did you have a practice at one point and you were working with people um, or how did I, you get into I that? I still do. Yeah. So I, I'm still a clinician. I still see patients um, every week and it's still a big part of what I do. Okay. Uh, and I've been doing that for about 10 years now, you know, both like as, as a student and then as a professional. Um, and so... I, I studied uh, Chinese medicine and integrative medicine and then um, became licensed in California mm. and um, have been practicing here ever since. And, but my focus is really functional medicine at this point, which is uh, really the, the, the approach with functional medicine is to focus on the underlying cause of a problem rather than just suppressing symptoms. Right. So, you know, with... Conventional medicine, if you have high blood pressure, you get a drug to lower it. If you have high cholesterol, you get a drug to lower it, and you're expected to take those drugs for the rest of your life. And there's you know, rarely any investigation into what's causing the problem in the first place. Whereas in functional medicine, you know, to use an analogy, if you have a, a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, we mm. don't just give you a painkiller. We we tell you, to, you know, we, we figure we, we take off the shoe and dump the rock out basically. Yeah, that's a good one though. It's been on the show. Yeah. yeah headaches aren't aspirin deficiencies. Yep. And, yeah. and, and heart disease is not a statin deficiency either. So, so some of the other functional medicine practitioners I've talked to on the show, they got so, um, not sick, but tired of answering the same questions over and over and over again, that kind of led them to put it out to the masses, whether it be a mm-hmm. book or a blog or a podcast. Is that kind of what, what was your draw in starting, you know, the books? Was it a frequently asked question kind of compilation that you could just give to someone and, and they could follow and make their life better? Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it, I guess. I, I wanted to have all of my core recommendations that I make in one place. Uh, the blo- blogs are really useful. Um, they're they're a nice uh, way of, you know, delivering current information, but they're not a really good way of organizing information historically or putting it into a kind of concise format. Mm-hmm. So rather than, you know, telling someone, hey, read these, you know, 23 blog posts and listen to these 14 podcasts. And, right, right. You know, that's really inconvenient and not most people aren't going to do that. And whereas if you say just read this book, you know, it's this one thing, uh, a lot more people will be willing to do that. And and books, you know, the publishing industry has changed tremendously and it will continue to change. But I think books still play a really important role in our society and, there's a way that uh, a reach that they have that that blogs and podcasts still don't yeah. have, and I continue to hear from people who've read my book and been really affected by my book, to, who have no idea that I even have a blog or a podcast or don't you know don't listen to it or don't read it and never will. Yeah. So yeah. you know it's it's important from that perspective. I think blogs are important, and when I was looking over yours, I was really um, impressed by kind of how cutting edge. I hate that word, but cutting that phrase, cutting edge, Mm. the kind of topics were, you know, vitamin B12 deficiencies and coconut milk and nitrates, nitrites. I mean, it's a very fast way to get information out there. Um, And I think there's a big lag time with what the general public 
sees an information. You go into a, a doctor like you were talking about with your um, irritable bowel or diarrhea, you know, digestion problems, and they want to give you pills or say that yeah. saturated fat causes all these heart diseases. And, and there's a lag time there. But with blogs and these resources, you're able to kind of cut that down and get it to the, the general public faster. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head there, Clark. It's one of the biggest problems in, in medicine and just public health in general right now. Uh, the nutrition that classes that, that doctors take, which is usually only one, in uh, an entire curriculum of, of medicine and health, there's one nutrition class. So that, wow. uh, you know, think about that for a second. Um, so they're totally undereducated on nutrition in the first place, but the information that they're being taught is, you know, from textbooks that were written 30 years ago, or maybe they're more recent, but the, the, the studies that were used to inform that curriculum were 30 years old. And we've learned a ton in that last, in that period yeah. of time. And, uh, so unfortunately a lot of the uh, you know, standard of practice and care is based on really outdated research. And if you go and you look in the scientific literature, for example, um, most researchers and, and scientists no longer believe that dietary cholesterol affects blood cholesterol. And in fact, finally, the U.S. updated its guidelines to remove any restrictions on dietary cholesterol because there's simply no research to support that. Hmm. But I think if you talk to the average person, especially like people in older generations, you know, 50, 60 years old, they absolutely still believe that, you know, the, the memo hasn't, they didn't get the memo yet that we, they shouldn't be eating egg white omelets and boneless, skinless chicken breast and, you know, or egg beaters or, or, and worrying about cholesterol because they were indoctrinated for so many years to avoid it. And now it's going to take another 10 or 20 years to, to like reverse that misinformation. Whereas someone who's following a blog regularly can get almost instantly updated uh, when that paradigm shifts. And yeah. so, you know, that that's kind of good news, bad news. The good news, I think more people are following blogs now, especially in the younger generation, and they're not depending on the traditional routes of information, you know, the, the ways that information used to be distributed about health, mainly through the doctor. Now people are getting it from blogs and podcasts. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of my patients are better educated about nutrition uh, and lifestyle than their doctors. Hmm. And, and if anyone's educating anyone, it's their patients educating the doctor. If yeah. The doctor is open to that. Absolutely. And so then what's kind of like if you had to give someone a note card of, of Chris Kresser's approach to nutrition or lifestyle or let's focus on nutrition, what would be some of the bullet points on there? What's your approach to what nutrition should look like? Well, I, I advocate a paleo-based diet or what I've called a paleo template. And I think a strict paleo diet is a fantastic elimination diet. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, something that you can use to hit the reset button on your, for, for your health and get you back to like a really good baseline. And, uh, and then from there, you can start reintroducing some foods that aren't typically considered to be paleo, but modern research suggests they're healthy when they're well tolerated, like full fat dairy, for example, or dark chocolate or alcohol, um, and see how you tolerate them. And it's easier to do that from that baseline where you're feeling good from eating just foods that we know that most people tolerate really well. Right. That's the value of an, a 30 day paleo reset is what I call it, or a whole 30, like you know Dallas and Melissa call it, or mm. uh, any of these different ways of looking at it. But you hit that reset button, and then when you reintroduce those 
kind of what I call gray area foods that can be healthy if you tolerate them well. It's a lot easier to tell if you do when you're starting from that place of feeling good instead of starting from a place where you're still, you know, unwell. Okay. Okay. I see. You know, there's a lot of um, myths floating on around there too. We were talking about the lag time between the general public and kind of blogs can cut that down. What are one or two major myths you see out there or you get asked to when you're at a dinner party and someone hears you're a, you know, functional medicine Mm -hmm. doctor and uh, what, what are like the two or three most common myths you see floating on out there still? Oh, it's so hard to choose. And it depends whether you're talking about myths in the mainstream world or, or myths in the kind of paleo functional medicine world. Right. But I, I guess we could do one of each. Um, you know, in the, in the mainstream world, I guess we were already starting to, to, to talk about um, cholesterol, dietary cholesterol and saturated fat and the relationship there. Um, that's changed a lot. I mean, I think there's a big awareness. There's even been pretty mainstream books about, you know, uh, challenging the relationship between saturated fat and, and, and blood cholesterol and heart disease risk. But I think that's probably still one of the single biggest myths. I, you know, I'm still, it's not unusual for me to go out, you know, maybe I'm on traveling and I go out for coffee and I, and you know, the two or three people in front of me order uh, non-fat lattes or, you know, soy lattes. And yeah. then the reason is they're probably, they're trying to avoid the fat in the, in the milk, in the whole milk. Um, so clearly people are still concerned about this. And the truth is when you look at the research, um, the relationship between saturated fat and heart disease is very weak. If, if there is an, if, if there is one at all, um, some of the biggest, best performed studies recently have shown that there's there's no relationship between saturated fat and heart disease. And in fact, there's an inverse relationship between saturated fat and stroke, which means the more saturated fat you eat, the less chance of stroke you have. So that's probably the biggest mainstream myth. I would say in the kind of you know, paleo world, primal, you know, more progressive nutrition world, one of the biggest myths is, I think, is that everybody should be on a low carb diet. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people when they switch to paleo originally end up on a low carb diet, whether they intended to or not, because they cut out bread and flour and sugar and, you know, all the crappy carbohydrates, but they don't replace those with, you know, good whole food carbohydrates so that they eat mostly meat and non-starchy vegetables, maybe some nuts and seeds. And that's it. And that's that's a really low carb diet. And some people will do well on that, but a lot of people won't. And uh, I see a lot of patients in my practice who are uh, not eating enough fruit or starchy carbohydrates like sweet potatoes or plantains or taro, yuca, things like that. And uh, it's a relatively simple change that people can make to really improve their health. Okay. Um, let's touch on the the big one then with the saturated fat because I still we still get tons of emails with people confused to death about saturated fat because there's you know of course that fifty years of research saying or or opinion saying you know it's bad it clogs your arteries it gives you heart disease that's it end of yeah. story and now with this emergent stuff people are left somewhere in between you know should I eat all saturated fat or none at all um, yeah. so. What's your take then on saturated fats? I mean, it's a big question. There's books yeah. on it, but so so um, part of the confusion I think is that there's there's really we're we're similar in a lot of ways as human beings, but we're also different. You know, we and we have different genetics 
for one. Uh, we also have different lifestyles, different activity levels, different needs. And so the reason I call my book Your Personal Paleo Code is that as a, as a healthcare provider, one thing I've learned is there's, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. So, um, and, and this is why when you see a study, one of the things that's really important to understand about studies, they do a big population study and they're trying to answer the question, does eating saturated fat increase the risk of heart disease? So let's say a study finds that overall there's, there's no relationship between saturated fat and heart disease. If you like look under the covers in that study, what you'll find is that people who ate in people who ate more saturated fat, you know, some people had an increased risk of heart disease. You know, some people had a decreased risk and some people had no change, but overall, if you average that all out, there's no change. Right. But, but that doesn't mean that for some people eating a high saturated fat diet doesn't increase cholesterol. It absolutely does. And I've seen mm. that in my practice over and over again. And these are typically people who have certain genetic, uh, haplotype or genetic type that means they're more susceptible to the effects of saturated fat in the diet. And if they do eat more saturated fat, their cholesterol might go up a lot. You know, there's a whole nother discussion about what the relevance of that is, but we can, I think, say conclusively that there's a variation in how sensitive people are to, to saturated fat. So yeah. That's one of the, that's why people are confused. Okay. And is it, is it pretty much like the average, like what's the spread in that of people who are very sensitive to saturated fat versus somewhere in the middle? Is it pretty skewed? Like are yeah. there a lot of outliers, like 20% or is it? No, the percentage right of these genotypes who are highly sensitive is pretty low, you know, so we're talking about probably less than 10% of the population. Um, most people are not highly sensitive and but then there are also health conditions that can make you more sensitive too. But here's what we can say. If you look at the research, what it says, the most recent studies on saturated fat and heart disease, that large studies with lots of participants, they say on average, there is no correlation between saturated fat intake and heart disease. Hmm. So when it comes to something to worry about in your diet, saturated fat is not the thing to be concerned about. The thing to be concerned about is processed and refined foods, you know, all of the breads and the pastas and the super big gulps and Twinkies and cheese doodles yeah. and, you know, all this stuff that's become such a major part of the diet. Sure. So when we're talking about fat, I know one point that's been um, brought up multiple times on the show has been it's always about quality, the quality of fat. Not only is it very important for any oils you're consuming, obviously not the trans ones, but even in the animal fat, because that's where it stores the toxins. Um, what's your take on quality of, of fat? Yeah, I would say quality is much more important than quantity for any macronutrient, <clears throat> whether we're talking about fat or protein or carbohydrate. And unfortunately, you know, it's almost ridiculous to talk about fat as a, as a, you know, whole class of, of foods, because there's such a range, as you pointed out, you know, there's trans fats, which are, have unequivocally mm -hmm. been shown to be harmful. And then there's, you know, polyunsaturated fat and monounsaturated and saturated, and they all have different effects on the body. So, wow. and then, and with carbohydrate, you know, we cannot talk about like a donut which is, you know, or, or let's even just say white flour in the same class as a sweet potato or an apple. Hmm. Like they're obviously different. They're all carbohydrate, right? But they're obviously really different. So yeah. um, language quality, plays a role. Quality is a huge, 
issue. And uh, so I, you know, like probably other guests on your show, I recommend that people eat fats in the least processed form possible. And that if they are, when they're eating animal fats, that they try to get pasture-raised organic animal fats, because as you mentioned, that fat is where the toxins are stored. So uh, if of any part of the animal that, you know, that you want to eat pasture-raised and organic fat would be number one, even more so than the meat and muscle meat because of the toxin issue. Okay. Okay. I see. Um, when I was looking over your site, I read an article that was one of your most popular ones. It was the, the nitrate nitrite differentiation yeah. and the, and uh, I think the title I have it here is um, the bacon what was it it was bacon problems or <laughs> yeah, something yeah, well, with bacon yeah uh, I yeah that. everyone loves articles about bacon right yeah. I mean because uh, bacon is good <laughs> most people love bacon and they're always happy to learn something that gives them a little more of a license to eat it right um, so there are uh, so yeah you know the the part of the criticism against bacon has been that it contains nitrates and nitrites. But when you look at other, when you look at the food supply as a whole, there are other foods like arugula, which I mentioned in the article that are much, much higher in those compounds than bacon is. And so if we're going to really be concerned about nitrates and nitrites in food, we should be concerned about these other foods that, that, um, have a lot more than bacon. Now, that doesn't mean I think everyone should eat bacon for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, every day. And there are some studies suggesting that excess intake of processed meat or meat that's been cooked at high temperatures or cured uh, meats uh, can be problematic. But I don't think it has anything to do with the nitrates and nitrites. Okay. So when I'm at Whole Foods and I'm looking at the bacon... You know, normally I just get bogged down with the the gluten free, right. soy free, dairy free, GMO yeah. free, and yeah. now there's now there's this other label, nitrate free, yeah. nitrite free. Can you kind of yeah. well, explain for the in layman's terms what that actually is? Well, it's it's you know part of the curing process, and um, histo- you know typically when uh, people have cured meats, they use something that contains either natural uh, agents that contain the nitrate or nitrite or, or they use, uh, you know, they, they add nitrate or nitrite to it um, in, in the curing. So you can see uncured bacon right mm-hmm. now yeah. in the store. You could see, you know, bacon that's just normal, normally cured. Um, I don't think anyone needs to be worried about that, as I just said. And so it's not necessary to buy uncured bacon when you buy bacon. I actually prefer the taste of, of cured bacon and that's what we buy. So uh, I don't think it's a relevant factor. Like, like you suggested, it's more important typically that you buy bacon that's organic or pasture raised if possible. And that if you're sensitive to gluten, um, that you make sure that it's not cured with, you know, anything that contains gluten. Okay. And how did the, the nitrate nitrite um, get like such a bad name? Why is it such a big deal for a lot of people? Does it, is it a problem? Well, yeah. So there's some relationship between uh, nitrate and nitrite and cancer, but it's really complex. Um, oh. And it in, involves a lot of physiology. That's not just about how much you eat, but it's about what's going on physiologically 
obviously if it was about how much you eat, then arugula would be one of the biggest cancer causing foods because of its high content and it's clearly not. So it's another one of these examples where something that's really complex uh, and nuanced gets oversimplified and then, you know, uh, there are scare tactics used and people just get the wrong idea. And then once once that's in the public consciousness, it's really hard to reverse it. That's a really good point, man, because once once you throw cancer next to anything, (laughs) that's an easy way to make people stop eating it freak out exactly yeah another thing that i've i've read about and that i read one of your articles was on the acid alkaline balance right i I first heard about that from uh i was reading a tony robbins book like years ago yeah yeah he was he was advocating eating only fruit because it's you know you get more alkaline and that's what gives you energy and your blood ph um can you set it up real quick yeah what is the uh, another one of those those common myths you know you asked me a while back what are the biggest myths and there's just so many it's hard to know where to start but this one is is less of a mainstream myth it's more of like an alternative medicine myth right right and uh yes everyone from tony robbins other big celebrities have advocated it and it's just based in a in a in a really uh in a misunderstanding of basic physiology and how, how the body works so our body very tightly regulates the acidity or pH of our blood. It's so important to our survival that we have multiple redundant mechanisms for making sure it stays in this very narrow range because you can actually die. If it goes too high or too low, it goes out of this really narrow range, you you will die. So it's really important. And from an evolutionary perspective, if you think about it, it doesn't make sense that what we could eat would really dramatically affect that range because right. it can kill us, right? We wouldn't survive very long if, if we could just eat something and oops, our acid alkaline range is, you know, gets thrown out of range and we die. So yeah. um, what we know is that what the foods that we eat don't affect our ac- the acidity of our blood at all. They just don't. They do affect the acidity of our saliva and our urine. And so these test kits that get sold to like measure your acid alkaline balance, they're measuring the acidity of your saliva or your urine, but that's part of those, the body's mechanisms for regulating your blood pH is by, you know, changing the acidity of other body fluids. Hmm. So... Um, it's really a non-issue. It, it, another argument has, has been made that eating animal protein uh, leads to osteoporosis because it's acidic. Right. You know, I don't know if, if Tony Robbins covered that. but the, And the idea is that it, uh, it depletes calcium in the bones, which we need for healthy bones. And it turn, when you look in the scientific literature, what you find is that when you eat animal protein – you do see an increase in the uh, excretion of, of um, urinary excretion of something called, uh, well, I won't go into too much detail. I don't want to um, overwhelm your readers with, with detail. But what you find is that animal protein actually improves calcium absorption. It, mm. doesn't, de- it doesn't decrease it. And if you look at studies of people who eat animal protein they have better bone health and less risk of osteoporosis than people who don't eat animal protein. And that's particularly true in uh, elderly populations. It's probably another quality thing as well. Yeah, quality makes a difference, but it's, it's really that uh, 
you know, animal protein is something that we evolved eating for thousands and thousands of generations. And uh, it's something we're well adapted to. And so physiologically, um, that's, you know, when someone eats animal protein, they actually end up absorbing more calcium than if, mm. than if they're not. And uh, that's, you know, that's pretty unequivocal in the scientific literature. So there's, yeah. there's no need to be on an alkalizing diet. I, you know, I, it's a good idea to include fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, but not for the reason that they're alkaline. So the general theory, uh, let me know if I'm getting it right for the acid alkaline balance was that your pH, the more alkaline it is, which would be uh, a higher pH, the more energy right. you would have because of the absorption of oxygen or something along those lines. And the more acidic would be less energy because you can't absorb it as well. That's just hocus pocus. Okay. There's no, uh, like I said, the whole, the thing completely breaks down because what you eat does not affect your, your, the pH of your blood. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, you can find that in any medical textbook. It's, that's why I said this whole theory is based on a complete misunderstanding of, of basic human physiology. Wow. It's kind of crazy that a theory like that, then, if it's, if it's pretty clear that it, what you eat does not affect your blood, made it so far. Right. Well, it, you know, if you're like, again, like I said, if you're measuring the urine and you're measuring urine pH in response to what you eat, you do see changes. And so that, you know, led to some of the confusion, I think, yeah. because, like I said, people are using these test kits and they're, 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 they switch to a more alkaline diet and they see their pH change in the urine. They're like, wow, this works. It's like immediate feedback, you know. But yeah. what they don't realize is that the urine pH doesn't necessarily match the serum pH. And the changes that you see in the urine, that's part, part of what happens when, is the kidney does its job and buffers excess acids and those acids come out in, in the urine and you see them in the urine. But that oh, doesn't mean that, that it's changing in the blood. I see. Yeah. So it's like a regulatory mechanism. Regulatory mechanism. Exactly. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Well, yeah. speaking of fruits and vegetables, one thing on your blog I was reading about, I think it was on your coconut oil um, blog post was on fructose malabsorption. And we've never had anyone brought bring that up on the show. I think it's a really fascinating topic based on what I was yeah. looking at that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome is a big problem that affects a lot of people. It's the number two cause of people missing work behind the common cold. Um, it counts for a lot of doctor's visits every year, a lot of prescriptions, not something people like to talk about or advertise, you know, yeah. it's an uncomfortable topic, but it's a huge problem. And, uh, one of the there are a number of different things that contribute to it and cause it, but one of the potential mechanisms uh, that we know about is fructose malabsorption and malabsorption of a whole class of ca of carbohydrates called FODMAPs. Um, and these are certain types of carbohydrates, including fructose, that are poorly absorbed. They're not absorbed, you know, like glucose, which is another sugar molecule. When we eat that, it goes you know, it gets absorbed really high up in the small intestine. It's a, a simple sugar. So it just goes right across the lumen of the intestine in, into the uh, bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy for us to absorb that. But fructose and, and some of these other carbohydrates, um, they're, they're harder to break down. And so they, they linger around in the small intestine for longer. And if you have an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestine, those bacteria will consume the fructose and these other carbohydrates, and then they produce 
hydrogen and methane gas, which causes, you know, bloating and gas and change like constipation or diarrhea or abdominal pain, all these characteristics, symptoms of IBS. And so, hmm. um, you know, for that, for it's, it's not a problem for most people, but for some people it is an issue and then they need to, to, um, be, a, be aware of, of which foods contain these, uh, these compounds, but more than that, they need to look into why that's happening in the first place. And that's, again, one of the principles of functional medicine. Like instead of just saying, don't ever eat fructose, we want to look at why they're not absorbing fructose in the first place and then address that. Okay, I see. So instead of a fructose specific issue, it's probably more of a general gut health issue. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that, so for example, I mentioned bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. That's, I think, typically in my experience, the cause of, of fructose malabsorption. And if you correct that, the patient will be able to absorb fructose better. They may not go, they may, uh, still have some small, some problem with it. Like they can't handle a large amounts of it, but mm-hmm. it'll be much improved typically. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, and so for the everyday person who's eating fruit, you know, maybe two, three, maybe five servings a day, what would they be feeling if they had a kind of a fructose malabsorption? They would be feeling bloated and, and probably have a lot of gas and they might feel some abdominal pain and might make them like more, you know, tend towards loose stools or diarrhea or constipation. And this would be particularly fr- true for the fruits that are higher in fructose rather than glucose. And you can get a list of these just you know by going and googling uh, high fructose fruits and vegetables, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know you'll see a whole bunch of websites that have lists of of the foods that are higher in in fructose. Okay. And so then in like a general diet, let's just say the person's totally healthy or yourself for that matter, what part of a role, like what percentage of the diet is fruit based or how, how important is fruit in a diet? Uh, so I think fruits and vegetables are really important and they have a lot of compounds that, uh, first of all, they, they're, they have a lot of vitamins and minerals, but they also have a lot of compounds which we've typically referred to as, as antioxidants, um, polyphenols, and phytochemicals that really, I think the more we learn about them, the more we, we find that they are crucial to our health. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think fruit it falls in, you know, is, is part of that. It's uh, f- all whole fruits and vegetables. And I, I've never seen any research, you know, I've always challenged the low-carb advocates to show me this research, and I've, I've never seen it, that shows that consumption of whole fruit, not fruit juice, but whole fruit, leads to obesity or any metabolic problems, even at several servings a day. There's just no evidence of that. And mm. you look at traditional cultures, hunter-gatherer societies that consumed pretty large amounts of fruit, they were still lean without obesity or insulin resistance or cardiovascular disease or anything like that. Um, So I think for the average person, like you said, who's healthy and doesn't have diabetes or insulin resistance or any issues like that, consuming, you know, two to three servings of whole fruit a day is perfectly fine. There's no reason to avoid food, fruit, a whole class of food that's been shown to be so beneficial for our health. Yeah. And so what would they argue then is the reason you should avoid it? Is it the insulin sensitivity and your body can't handle that? Yeah. So some of the low carb advocates just think sugar is sugar. 
And, you know, if you, whether you get it from a big gulp or blueberry, it's the same and has a toxic effect on the body. And so you should just avoid it. And I, I really, you know, I've argued vehemently against that idea because I don't think there's really evidence to suggest to, you know, we're well adapted to eating fruit and, and whole food sugars. We were, you know, before we were even human, that's what we were eating. And, uh, so it's been a long time part of our diet and the way that an apple, for example, or blueberries affect us and affect our blood sugar is completely different than the way a piece of bread or a cookie or a soft drink or even fruit juice affects our blood sugar. So they really can't be considered as being the same carbohydrate sources or same foods. Yeah. I've heard a lot of, uh, conflicting information out there especially from the low carb side they see, there seems to be a, a belief and i'm not sure the science behind it that fructose specifically is different is metabolized differently in your body than like a glucose or a sucralose and that it's more prone to cause uh fat storage of some sort that, have, have yeah, you heard that, something that, similar well, that's definitely a prevalent idea i don't think the research really supports that um i would uh, refer you, you and your listeners to the work of um, Stefan Guinet. He has a blog called Whole Health Source, and it's been around for a long time. And he's written a lot of critiques of that hypothesis. And again, the truth is, we're well adapted to eating both fructose and glucose when it occurs in real foods. Um, so, you know, apples are pretty high in fructose. But there's never been any studies showing that people who eat apples are developing metabolic problems. Now, when you talk about high fructose corn syrup and and you know as a sweetener for liquid uh, for beverages like soft right. drinks, that's right. a totally different story. Yes, there's there's definitely evidence that suggests that sugar in liquid form is harmful. But the reason that it's harmful is that it increases our calorie intake. Uh, and we don't compensate for those extra calories somewhere else. So uh, let's say that you eat three or four pieces of fruit. Uh, that's going to make you feel satiated or, you know, it's going to affect your appetite, right? Because there's fiber and there's other things that affect that, that your feeling of satiety. So if you eat three or four pieces of fruit, you'll reduce your calorie consumption elsewhere in the diet. So you'll end up, you know, not eating more because you're eating the fruit. But if you drink a soda... What they've shown in studies is that you will just eat the same amount everywhere else. You don't actually reduce your calorie consumption. Mm -hmm. So that soda just adds to whatever you were eating. And it means that you end up eating more calories than you would if you weren't drinking the soda. And it's that excess in calorie consumption that causes the insulin resistance and all of the metabolic problems. And if you look at history graphs of you know, the, 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 the rise in obesity over the years, you, you'll see that that tracks very well with a, an, a gradual increase over time in how many calories we're eating. I see. Okay. And so uh, maybe in, in your diet then, if we're talking about fruits and kind of carbs and sugars in general, what role do carbohydrates play? You mentioned most of the low carbers tend to do it too extreme. So if I followed you around and kind of saw what you were eating for a day or a week, what would your carbon take look like? So I think most people do well. And again, we're just talking about the basic kind of starting points. In my right. book, I, I have different starting points for different people, and you know, depending on their circumstances. So if you're an athlete, you might have one starting point. If you're pregnant, you might have another. But just 
general average, I think 20 to 25% of calories from carbohydrate is a pretty good starting place. And, you know, what that looks like for me or, or for most people on a, on a paleo type of diet would be uh, for each meal, a, a, you know, serving of protein, a serving of non-starchy vegetables, and then maybe a serving of starch like a sweet potato or plantains or, or yucca or taro, any of these other kind of starchy vegetables. Even potatoes, I think, are fine. They're well tolerated by most people. Um, and then maybe a serving of fruit uh, or two between meals if, or, or with a meal if that's what you like to do. That will get you to about 20, 25% of calories uh, from carbohydrate. Okay, I see. So it's mostly the the tubers, they call them, right? The yeah, starchy. Yeah, those are starchy tubers. And uh, if you look at, again, most hunter-gatherer societies that had access to those, eat them liberally. Um, they're a big part of the diet in many parts of the world. Uh, the 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 Kitavans in the South Pacific, actually like 70% of their calories came from carbohydrate, mostly in the form of, of sweet potatoes and other tubers. Mm -hmm. they're, they're people, uh, the Tukasenta and the Papua, Papua New Guinea highlands who consumed 95% of their calories from carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. uh, they almost, they basically just ate sweet potatoes and the little bit of protein and fat they got was probably from insects that were on the sweet potatoes that they were eating. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not suggesting that that would work for most people, but I am that those are good examples to show that carbohydrate is not the problem. It's the type of carbohydrate that, that people ha are eating in this country. Yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, there's the new data that just came out showing that carbohydrate consumption has decreased since 1999. Um, but obesity has continued to increase steadily over that period. Mm. So that's pretty damning evidence that carbohydrates as a whole class are not the problem. Oh. What do you think? Uh, I know we're, we're wrapping it up here, but I'm really curious. You seem to be very in the research and seeing, again, yeah. that cutting edge stuff. What What's kind of the most exciting development you've seen in the past two or three years? I think we're learning a lot about the microbiome, you know, our, our gut bacteria and how they influence health and disease. And we're uh, learning how to mod mod modify the gut bacteria in positive ways so that we can prevent disease from occurring and, and even reverse disease in some cases. And so that's one of the exciting developments. I would say the other one is how much we've learned about genetics and mm. how genes, you know, influence our health, but how more particularly the interaction between our diet and lifestyle and our genes influence our health. So I think in the not too distant future, you know, if someone goes into the doctor, they might have a little card that has their genotype on it and then their significant poly, you know, genetic mutations or polymorphisms, more accurate word. And, you know, the, the, the treatment that they're prescribed will be based on uh, their genes in addition to other factors, instead of just being the same treatment for everybody. I think that's definitely the future of medicine. It's fascinating stuff, man. And so your, your book then, The Paleo Cure, and then uh, your personal paleo code was the first one, correct? They're the same book, actually. The, Rebranded? The yeah, The Paleo Cure is a paperback, and, and we changed the title when we released the paperback. Okay, so cool. Book. Cool, awesome. And you put that out in 2013, correct? Yep, yep. Uh, 
Um, and so Amazon is, it's all over there. It's the best place. It's all the web- typical places. Yeah. yeah it's published by a uh, little Brown, the, you know, mainstream publisher. So it's in all the typical places where you'd find a book. Yeah. It's on Kindle and, you know, audible audiobook, all those formats. Excellent. And you have a podcast too, for everyone listening right now. Yeah. I have a podcast called revolution health radio. been doing that for a long time now, I think yeah. 2010. Um, and we talk about a lot of these kind of issues. You're right. I, I do focus a lot on science and research, but um, I, tr- I, my job is to kind of translate all of that into practical actions that people can take to improve their health. Yeah, it's really important, man. And so if they were to go over there and, and look at your podcast, do you have like one or two they should start with, the like must listen episodes? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. It just really depends on their interest. So I'd go to iTunes and then look through the list of topics. We have the titles always, you know, say exactly what we talk, what we're talking about. And I'm sure, because since I've been doing it for that long, we've we've covered a lot of topics. So you know, almost almost guarantee that if you have an interest uh, an interest in a topic, we've talked about it at some point. Yeah. Well, Chris, it was fascinating talking to you about fructose malabsorption and. Um, gut microbiome and quality of everything and research. So thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, Clark. I appreciate the invitation. Yep. Till next time. All right. That's today's show. Chris Kresser, really fascinating stuff. Get to geek out a little bit there. Uh, really smart dude. Palerhacks.com is the host of this show. Head on over there, get on the community, the form, the delicious mouth-watering recipes, good stuff. So what do I do with the rest of my time? That's a big question you guys have been emailing me, asking me. You know, I don't spend it all working with PaleoHacks.com. In fact, I've uh, recently updated and launched, relaunched, I should say, my own personal development blog, stuff about mindset. Um, Because, you know, like what we talk about on the show, you can have the world's best diet, but if you're unhappy at the end of the day, it really all doesn't matter. What's it all for? And so I've been working with people one-on-one and in groups for the past, I don't know, five or so years, and I've come up with 11 big questions. These are the questions that people ask themselves, you know, when they go to bed. These are the questions that can really impact, influence, and change your life for the better. And so I put to put them together in a free report on my site at clarkdanger.com. You can go over there right now and uh, no gimmicks, no hacks, no, no nothing. It's just a free report. You just got to enter your email and it's the 11 questions that'll change your life forever. That's right. Forever changed. <laughs> Hope I sold you on that. I mean, they're, they're really cool. If you take them seriously, I believe in them. And that's why I'm telling you guys about them. So that's just ClarkDanger.com. And of course, PaleoHacks.com, the place to be. Everything paleo and more. All right. We'll see you next Thursday. Thanks so much.